Hello everybody and welcome to Getting Close with Mike Marbeck. I'm going to keep this intro fairly short because there is some work being done right outside my house. I've been waiting for a while for them to stop so that I can record this in a quiet environment. Uh, there is now a break in the work, but I have no idea when they're going to start back up. I will say that there is a study hall comedy inspired by lectures show this evening, which actually features this episode's guest. Uh, we have been doing online shows and they've been really fun. So if you are looking for some online entertainment that is also cheap and features local talent, then check out Study Hall Inspired by Lectures. For more information, you can go to studyhallshow.com. This episode has been uh, talked about for a long time, and you will hear us talk about how it was talked about for a long time uh, within, this, within this episode. It features one of my favorite people in uh, Philly comedy. I've worked with this person for years. Uh, it's always been a fun, pleasant experience. And I've also collaborated with this person on projects from time to time. And that, too, has always been super positive, very fun, and very easy. Because this person is just one of the nicest people that I know. He recently captivated the attention of many of us that are probably listening to this podcast when he unveiled one hell of a hat. I'm talking, of course about Joe Moore. I've got two tickets for paradise. Won't you pack your bags for me tonight? I've got two tickets for paradise. I've got two tickets for paradise. Uh, is it just Joe Moore? Is it, is it Joseph Moore? <laughs> just Joe. Just Joe? Yeah, just Joe. Your middle name? Robert. Cool. Formation name is Francis. Nice. Joey, Bobby, Frankie. I just need a mother's maiden name and a social. Marble. <laughs> what? No! <laughs> hey, can I just say I really love that song that you just played in between your introduction and the interview? That's a great song. Uh, yeah. Um, well, Joe, we had talked about doing this for a really, really long time. Yeah. And it hasn't happened. So I'd, I've had plenty of time to think about a song. Uh, to I was into this. prepared to not bring up how long we've been planning to do this. But do you know, like roughly? It's about two years. Dude, it is way longer than two years. Because this think was, so? I, think, I think we talked about it in the, the first run. Because when you started doing it again, because this is the third iteration of it, right? Uh, it is, yeah, I guess you could you could say that. There were like um, two hiatuses there, roughly? Yeah, see, the way that this podcast works is I do them when I think about it. Yeah, right. When there's <laughs> global pandemics, it's a good time to get back, blow, blow, yeah. blow yeah. the dust off of the old podcast. I'll do a handful of episodes. I'll let a year or two pass. And then when the world falls apart, for some reason, I feel the need to do this. Because I'm pretty sure when you started doing them again two years ago or whatever... You asked me if I would do it, and I was like, I'm, I thought, I was like, I'm pretty sure we did. <laughs> and I thought we had talked about doing it then. But anyway, to, for, to celebrate our podcast recording have withered, but here they are. Yeah. Your flowers. Thank and you. The chocolates, they're all moldy now, but you can take the chocolates too. I should have just let you believe that we did do it. 
because <laughs> now I'm curious what your thoughts were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I went back and I looked at like uh, all the blog posts. I was my first. I guess this is like how egomaniacal I can be. But my first thing was like, man, did he delete it? That was I. <laughs> like, this can never see in the light of day. It was on like an old cassette tape, and I just <laughs> broke it in half. But the uh, the that first couple of like in the first 10 you had greg proops right yeah yeah that was pretty crazy run yeah i had him uh, i still talk to him once in a while too uh he's he may be doing the can peaches deadwood podcast soon oh cool Uh, yeah uh he's a good guy and we recorded that in the back of uh helium on my phone uh just sitting on like a pillow between us wow Uh, yeah 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 so we had we get some good people yeah, and nice pick, pick it up with me now. The trend continues because yeah. we've got Joe Moore here. All right. Uh, so to get into things, uh, how did you – and I don't, I don't want to hear about how you like got involved in, in fit or comedy, the comedy and scene in Philly just yet. Um, I'm curious how you got into comedy at all uh, as, a, as a consumer, like what you liked growing up. Yeah, the big three were The Simpsons. Sure. Um, and I, I wasn't, I couldn't watch The Simpsons. We were a little, our household was a little strict. So what my mom did, she had recorded an episode and screened it and said this one was okay for me to watch. And it's from season, I think it's season two, when they go on, they get the RV. Mm-hmm. Where it looks like a mud man, like a Sasquatch. So we had that on tape, and any time I wanted to watch The Simpsons, she would put that in because she had screened it, and there was no hell or ass or any of those fun words, cool words. Can't. I mean, I would have been in like first or second grade, I guess, at that point. So I would go into school on Monday, and everyone would talk about the episode of The Simpsons from Sunday night. Right. I would be like, yeah, they went camping in the RV again because she would just show me that. <laughs> And then like, what, the, what are you talking? No, that's not it at all. So I, so that was when I could finally see when they started doing it in reruns and syndication and I could catch two episodes a night. I used yeah. to have a VHS tape recorder that would tape an hour of Simpsons every night. Yeah. Um, so that was big. Weird Al was huge too. I had a Weird Al tape and I found, I figured out real quick, I played baseball and if I sang Weird Al songs to the kids on my baseball team, they'd stop punching me. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, why were they punching you? Nah, they were just bullies. You know, like it was just, um, if you, yeah, if you made them laugh, they were, they were like, oh, this kid's funny. Uh, go, and then they'd, like they would bring me, the tough kids on my team would bring me over to like the other team and be like, hey, sing, <laughs> sing the Yoda song or sing, you know, the song about Oreos. Yeah. And then they'd shoot at your feet. Yeah. <laughs> and then sing. So those were all funny things that I was like, okay, this is interesting and and they're great. But Mr. Show with Bob and David was like the was the light bulb, lightning bulb, aha thing. Sure. Uh, and you watched the show the other night, the uh, Zoom show they did, right? Yeah, they just did. A, they just did a show. Uh, what did you think of that? It was cool. I mean, it you know, it was it's really fun. It's like at this point they're like. Um, like beyond criticism for me, like I can't look at them objectively. I mean, if I could, I would say that it really sh- stuck out how poorly they treat the female cast members of Mr. Show. Yeah. Um, 
because like they when they were like catching up with what everyone was doing like they just skipped over jill and like the maryland rice cub they were like oh you know she was on 24 and like obviously she doesn't like i argue she made it seem like she doesn't like that as a plug anymore um or as a credit but um but it was it was funny it was great seeing them again a couple of the sketches really made me laugh out loud some of it you know given the limitations of what they could do mm-hmm. you know i mean the same thing with the the netflix show i think i can't look at that like as a, like a critic you know what i mean yeah. it's just um it's just real i think and i think what they're doing the reason that they're doing it is because they just like doing it right like those people don't need to do Mr. Show. They're just doing it because it's fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Christ, uh, Bob Odenkirk has been doing, well, he, since then he's done, of course, Breaking Bad, uh, Better Call Saul, um, kills it in. He uh, he also popped up in Little Women this year. Oh, yeah. Last year. Very out of place. I mean, it's nice seeing him there. <laughs> just a little, little weird seeing Bob Odenkirk pop in there. <laughs> Um, it was almost as if he had won a, um, an omaze or something <laughs> an <Yeah>. omaze, you know? <laughs> for like, you know, 200 bucks or whatever. Yeah. He bought got, 20 tickets and yeah. <laughs> we got, I don't know. It's Bob Odenkirk. He, he, we, we got to put him in. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's give him a dad. <laughs> and he comes back. He's sick or something. Um, yeah. Okay. So Mr. Show, the Simpsons, Weird Al. But the food album, I had a lot. And again, like this is like third grade brain me. These are like some of the first cassette tapes I ever bought. Um, and I, yeah, it's just, that's so long ago. Yeah. What about the, uh, going back to the Simpsons, uh, you have a couple favorite episodes? Yeah. I, Bart versus Australia is, I think, like one. And I'm surprised it doesn't get as much. It doesn't, it's not as revered as some of the other episodes, mm-hmm. but for me, that is just like, it's just the most, the highest quality jokes, the most amount of jokes while still telling, you know, kind of an interesting story. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a work of art it, and it's my, one of my favorite. Work of art. What's that? So it's a work of art. Work of art. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I definitely have to crush the tape. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think for me, one of my favorites is Bart's soul. When he oh, sells his soul to Millhouse. Alf Pogs. Yeah, yeah, for Alf Pogs. Remember Alf? He's back in Pog form. Uh, something that I still quote uh, all these years later. I, like, I always like, change it up. But whenever I'm posting something, uh, I'll be like, hey, remember this? No, it's back um, in Pog form. That one. Uh, that one's got and, such a sweet ending, too. It does. It gets yeah. the... Hmm. Yeah, that one and the uh, Uncle Mo's family feed bag. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your potato fries, eat them. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) ma'am. I haven't watched um, like the last 15 years. (laughs) Because it's like, what, 25? How old is it? How many years? Every six months or so, someone you hear someone go like, oh, they're pretty good now. They're good <laughs> Every six months for the last, yeah, 20 years or whatever. Yeah. Oh, man. yeah. I, you know, those episodes in the beginning, and I think like people say like, oh, it doesn't get good till like season three. I really have a soft spot for, episode, for the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. So the animation's kind of crude and the episodes weren't figured out and stuff. But right. um, 
but those, yeah, when it was just like a family, it, it was just a family, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? They weren't going to space or they weren't acting out stories from the old Testament or whatever, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, season 12, season 13, like when it was just a family, that stuff yeah. was, it, it was so powerful and they could also, you know, be zany and be kind of silly. Yeah. And before Homer just became a, a doofus. Uh, I mean, he was always kind of a doofus, but he became like a dumb, doing dumb things doofus, I feel like. Um, And there are other characters that kind of have that path too, like Dwight Schrute on uh, The Office. That kind of happened with him. And even, I would argue, uh, Andre Brower's character, uh, Captain Holt on Brooklyn Nine-Nine has kind of become a little dumber as the show has gone on. Yeah. And comedic. I feel like I, there was like a video about Homer of like how Homer's like decline into madness and how crazier he gets and all that. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's like, yeah. If you think about Homer Simpson as being a human who is trapped at the same age for 32 years. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, I guess, yeah, he would go a little nuts. Uh, that's a, is that what the Mr. Bergstrom episode of The Simpsons with uh, Lisa's substitute? It's um, Dustin Hoffman is the her substitute teacher that she kind of falls in love with right. and he leaves, and he leaves her that note and he's, <laughs> he leaves a note that says you are Lisa Simpson. It is so sweet, and he and he tells her you're going to do all these great things and you're going to go all these places. You see, don't get hung up on me. There's a whole life ahead of you, and to think that is robbed of her. Oh God! Like she never does. She never makes it to third grade in real life. You know what I mean? Like, like I, you, I watch it and I get so welled up thinking about it. And then to realize what actually the fate that is ahead of Lisa Simpson to just, I don't know what it is, you know, whatever she's doing now is so sad. Well, they have some future episodes and they, we kind of see how they, how they end up. A couple of, uh, a couple of, well, I guess this is years ago now. My uh, wife was going in for an important job interview and uh, I was in the car with her dropping her off and I handed her a note and I was like, Hey, like before you go in there, everything you need to know is written on this note. And I just wrote, you are Lisa Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, that was meant to be a sweet thing, but it is pretty funny. Yeah. All right. So we got the, uh, some influences, the big three, The Simpsons, Weird Al Yankovic, Mr. Show. Yeah. With Bob and Dave. Um, were you perf- performing at all before getting involved in Philly comedy? Yeah, I was in a band. Um, I was in a couple, I was in a band in high school and a different band in college that like actually played out and like did some cool, cool stuff. What but, the names of these bands? In high school is called Dessa Bullshit. All one word. Dessa Bullshit. B-U-L-L. Okay. That was really fun. Uh, and then in college, it was a band called Turtle Soup. Turtle Soup? Yeah. And then the, there was a, there's already, if you can imagine this, there was already a band called Turtle Soup. <laughs> and there were like some jam band from South Jersey. We were up in North and Central Jersey. And it, their guitar player, uh, sent us a cease and desist letter. <laughs> um, oh, I would love to see a copy of that. Was he also, was he in law school? <laughs> I don't know, but he signed it mud. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
he got help from Clippy writing that one. So we, we dropped all the vowels out of turtle and kept using it. T-R-T-L soup. And that I think yeah. there's, there's some cool pictures of me. Yeah. When I was like 30 pounds lighter. What kind of music? I really, um, out there, like, like electronic. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I wouldn't write any of it. It was a friend of mine, Alex, who made all the music. And then he, he was like working at a radio station and met this guy who was starting up a, a label. And he was like, Hey, can I put your stuff out? Mm-hmm. I think this is how it goes. I'm not entirely sure. So he was like, can you, can you play shows? And Alex recorded all this stuff in his room with all these crazy instruments and all that. And he like basically just gave us the songs to me and my friend were like, if you can figure this out, we can go play shows. Yeah. So we did. Okay. And what were you playing? I played guitar, keyboards and drums. Nice. Yeah. Do you keep up with any of those instruments? You know what? I no, I really don't. I bought some synthesizers a couple of years ago and had recorded some silly stuff on that, just kind of for my own amusement. But since being in quarantine, I pulled the guitar out and have been playing. Okay. And uh, it's nice. It's it's taking a break. I think was good. Sure. Yeah. Okay. How about you? Play any instruments? Uh, not really. No. Um, I took piano lessons when I was younger and in high school. And I think that if I practiced and had someone, you know, teaching me again, I think I could be decent at it, but I don't. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you <laughs> practice anything, if you, <laughs> if you put in effort, you would be pretty decent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could sit down and play a piano. Um, Can you? Could you play a song on a piano? Yeah, I could play some songs on piano. Is it like... Um, is it like uh, Mary had a little lamb, like one note hunt and peck thing, or could you like? No, I have a, uh, a pretty a piano man, a full a, piano man. It would take me a while because I I do it by ear. Uh, so I'd be like, all right, come back in three hours. After three hours of me fiddling around, you come back and you're like, okay, yeah, I I can hear it. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> piano man. <laughs> I would love to to know what situation we would find ourselves in where we would have. I would be able to give you three hours to figure out, you know, piano man's like, you know, when people want to hear the piano man, they want to hear it now. You got to hit it and deliver. Yeah, it's true. Um, well, well let's, I wouldn't be able to do Let's it. take a break. We'll do a three hour break. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go out. I'll, or I should probably order a piano and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up in another four years. <laughs> uh, all right. So, playing some instruments, we're performing, but not doing any comedy before you kind of get involved in Philly comedy, right? I, d- I didn't even know that comedy existed outside of television. <laughs> like, I, I guess I, I went to a comedy club once in high school mm-hmm. in New York and saw Judah Friedlander, like, way, like, you know, in the early 2000s, I guess. But Get a bunch of mums. A bunch of mums? Is that I what just remember was? him in Meet the Parents. Judah, I'm pretty sure it's Judah Freelander. If it's not, I still enjoy this scene. Um, he is working at a, a wine store, a grocery store. Ben Stiller is looking for a nice bottle of wine. And uh, he's like, is this the only wine you got? Is this this $15 mums? Um, and he's like, yeah. He's like, well, don't you have any, like a nice $100 bottle? And he's like, well, you can buy a bunch of mums. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was in the liquor store once uh, in like the craft beer buy a bottle section. Mm-hmm. And it was this like little, like sweet old lady and her, what had to have been her grandson. And they were bought like looking at bottles and like, you know how the beer section is like, if you don't know what you're there for, it's just, and she obviously had no idea. Mm-hmm. So she's looking at all these like, you know, Belgian wheat ales and triple IPAs and stuff. And just not, she's not very, she doesn't know what she's looking for. So she like turns around the wall behind her has a, like a rack of forties and she, <laughs> she grabs a 40 of Budweiser and then, to her grandson is like, look, party sized. <laughs> <laughs> we can split this between the four of us. It's <laughs> like at a, at a um, Uca de Beppo or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the 40. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yikes. Shot glasses for this. Make this last. Uh, okay. So. How then do you make the move from sitting in front of a screen watching comedy to sitting in a chair in front of real humans doing it? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm went, I met some, I met Vince DiCostanzo. Yeah. Uh, from Flat Earth and the mm-hmm. Jenkins Rotary Auxiliary. Um, I bought a DVD at a store that Vince was at. And he told me, I was the Baron Munchausen, and he was like, I showed this, at a, I screened this with some friends at this place, this loft space in Audubon, New Jersey. He's like, you should come. Every Tuesday, we watch movies. Mm. So I had moved to South Jersey. I'd been here for maybe like six months or a year. I had one friend from college who was down here and knew no one else. And I was working 12 hours a day at a, just like a miserable job. and. Uh, so I went to this space and would hang out and they would show movies every week. And I didn't know anybody and I didn't realize, like I thought this was like some kind of weird business or something, but they were just all friends. Basically. Mm-hmm. And um, so hanging out there, they had a comedy night one night. And I remember Aaron Herzog and Doogie Horner were on it. And I saw them and was like, wow, that was really, that was really great. Um, friends and- of the, uh, what? I was saying friends of the podcast. They yeah. did the uh they did this way back. Yeah. Back when I was probably around the time <laughs> when I was asked to do <laughs> seven Got years ago. By Proop. <laughs> yeah. Proops and then uh, the uh, nine hour mega episode with the future. <laughs> Finally penciled me in. <laughs> We're doing it. It's good because like there's so much more stuff I can tell you about that's happened over the last however many years. Yeah. Yeah, uh, such as, like we were saying, uh, you getting involved in Philly comedy. So you go to a live show. They don't try to sell you a timeshare. So this turns out to be a legit oh. fun time. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I, it was made, I was made aware of the fact that there were these really funny and smart and kind and driven people who were doing cool stuff. And I think that's like it. Like if you can, if if at the loft space that night they had a poetry reading instead of comedy, and it was just populated with these very nice, smart, driven, funny people, I probably would be doing poetry. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was just, I found that there was this little community and back then it was little, but this little community of people who were getting up on stage as often as they could. And I realized that if after work, so like I said, I was down here, I really didn't know anybody. I didn't have a lot going on, worked a lot and I didn't have internet or TV in my apartment. Mm-hmm. So I would get out of work and just go stare at the walls. You know, like I didn't have, there was just nothing to do. So I realized if I get out of work and I get on the Patco, take that into the city, I can go see a comedy show for $5 or an open mic for free yeah, and then have a beer or two. And then after the show, if you like, you can follow behind the other, all the comedians go to some other bar. So I just follow them to another bar and then just like, pretend like oh hey didn't i see you guys at the other <laughs> yeah. and they were just all nice they were so everyone was so nice and um funny and smart and cool so i just i just kept going i would just come to shows for i don't know a year and a half yeah and this is about when what's that around what year this would have been 2009 2010 okay um, and then I did the Facebook group for the Paul F. Tompkins 300, which is a thing in ancient me- memory now. And what is that? He was doing a tour where if you get a Facebook group together where 300 people join, he'll come to any city. Anyway. Yeah. So I, and I happened to be, I was super into podcasts early on and happened to be the person who was by Facebook when that came out. He announced that on a podcast and I immediately set up the Philly one. So through that, I met a bunch of comedians who heard that too and were interested. And yeah. Yeah. So then I, I would just go see shows and I remember distinctly going to see Brendan and Roger on guilty pleasures. Mm -hmm. It was a Wednesday night, I think. And I was just like, it was incredible. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I went home that night and I told my friend, the one friend that I had in South Jersey, I was like, you have to see this show. It's nuts. I can't describe it. So I took him the next week, not realizing back then that fit was yeah. two weeks out of the month. It was on and shows were monthly. So I showed up there the next Wednesday. And I mean, the whole, we took the train on Wednesday night over and the whole ride. I'm telling my friend like, Oh, it was, they did this. And then there was this, and it was so funny. And a rap and this, and then we get there, like we went to the the bottle shop around the corner and got six packs and then we show up and the theater was locked and dark. <laughs> no, you gotta believe me. It was here. It was here. It's all there were people, there was comedy. <laughs> we just got back on the train with our six packs and went home. <laughs> oh, God. Did he eventually get to watch? Uh, yeah, he definitely, he made it out to some Guilty Pleasures. That was, I mean, that was the show, the Guilty Pleasures, and when it started where it was Guilty Pleasures and TV Party, when those two were back to back, that was like, I could bring anyone that I knew, and I could sit, if I just told them this is what all Philly comedy is like, they would be sold mm-hmm. Philly comedy. Yeah. So I brought, I brought a lot of people to those shows. Okay. Friends. Probably five. A lot for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for bringing a lot of, from from knowing nobody uh, <laughs> to bringing a lot of people is uh, that's progress. Yeah, we're getting somewhere. All right, so where does the first Wit Out Awards fit into this? Because you host that, right? Yeah, I. Uh, so, and this is before you were doing much 
within this the scene. And for anybody that's listening to this who doesn't know what the Without Awards are, uh, they were Philly Comedy Awards several years ago, and it ran for like three years, maybe, um, about that. And they were out of a website, without.net, um, which uh, Aaron ran for uh, a while. And uh, I'm surprised how much time he put into that, too. Yeah, Luke ran it first, though. Oh, Luke, yeah, that's true, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Luke and then Aaron and Allison. Yeah. Luke Giordano started that site, and I still have, I think, I, I just deleted a bunch of old emails, but I think I still have the thread where he was like, what are we going to call this thing? Where people were just thrown out, and he emailed like 70 people, or no, it couldn't have been that many, but a dozen people or whatever. A thousand. Uh, but there were like 70 emails of it with people trying to pick up names. His idea was so brilliant at the time to be like, look, no one's going to take us seriously if we don't give them something to take seriously, you know? And so he started this website. Now the problem for him was that the only people he knew who were interested in writing about it were comedians and they would just write about their own shit (laughs) doing other stuff or whatever. So as someone who was just always in the audience, he asked me, would you want to put stuff up? And so that's how I started writing. And I still think there are funny articles that I wrote that are up Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Like I still think they're funny. Some of them. Like uh, would, what was your favorite? I would go to an open mic and I would only, I would write down each comedian rather than like, you can't cover an open mic. You know what I mean? It's dumb. So I would like write down what their first and last word was <laughs> and just report on that. Or I would break down what they were wearing, like in detailed descriptions. So I, I would go to an open mic with like 20 people on it and write down who, you know, blue shirt, black pants, <laughs> night green Nikes, you know, like, um, just just silly shit. So I was doing that. And then this idea of an awards show came around. And the whole reason to do an awards show was for groups that were applying to festivals to say that you had won an award was cool. And to get some ink from the you know local publications or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was just to, it was literally a rising tide to lift all ships. Like, let's just do this thing and give ourselves awards and try to create some air of legitimacy around this. Yeah. Uh, and, and that what, first one was so much fun. Was that? The first one. It was just so much fun. It was a blast. And what better way to add an air of legitimacy about something than have me, <laughs> who, who like only like really maybe only like 15 people in that room, I think knew who I was. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, because he didn't want, everyone else would be winning awards or getting nominated for awards. So yeah. you need someone who, who didn't have a horse in a race to host it. Mm. And that was really, that was really nice of them. And it was really special and I really loved doing it. It was really fun. Okay. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed it. Uh, this podcast without award winning mm-hmm. multiple times. Really? Yeah. Uh, I, never won. I never won one. And I am so bitter about that. I have, Six. No shit. I do. I have. Are you only doing this because I said I'm bitter about not winning one? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stark Raven Man. <laughs> oh, <are> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I. Uh, I did all. I did all right with those during at the, yeah. at the time. Um, there was. I remember a um, uh, hate speech committee had one. Uh, best best improv. improv group. Yeah. Uh, and I remember people being like real sore about that. Uh, and Brendan, I fucking love Brendan Kennedy. Yeah. Um, because he is, he's so, 
honest about everything and he's just so fucking funny when he does it yeah because um, <laughs> he gets up and he says something like uh well that's what you get for not voting <laughs> <laughs> Um, but he was also like, we did good shows, you know? Um, it was just so funny. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, uh, I think with Brendan, it is like, you're right. He is so honest, but it's like equal parts, like enlightened and opinionated, just incredibly opinionated. Yeah. And also just this like clarion truth, (laughs) everything. Um, it's unbelievable. He's, he is that funny. Still, still, I still talk to him every now and then. Just like God, if he comes back to Philly, it's like a breath of fresh air. Uh, so you do the the without awards. No one knows who you are, uh, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have a great time, and the show is really fun. Yeah. And then it seemed like you get you start getting more involved. Almost, pretty pretty much from there, I think. Right? Not immediately, but <laughs> so you're going to say almost too involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one might say um, we should end this interview. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Luke Giordano pulled me up on stage. Someone didn't come to his show, the bully, uh, the bully pulpit, which yeah. was like a, it was a panel chat mm-hmm. show, and that was another one. His guilty pleasures, TV party, and bully pulpit were the shows that I would I would never miss. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I had been going for however long, and I knew Luke really well. Uh, hanging out with them and like we would like crack each other up after shows and stuff so I don't know if he thought I was funny or if he just knew that the other four people or five people in the audience that night were going to be on next month or had already been on uh-huh, yeah. Like, um, but yeah so he, someone didn't show up and so he just pulled me from the audience on the show and I went up and it was really fun and then after that yeah then it was like I took a class with Billy Thompson Billy Bob Thompson yeah and I was like, oh, I had written some stuff that I was trying to be funny before, but w- didn't know what I was doing. And then I took a class and I was like, oh, okay, so this is, you know, how you, how you write sketch. Okay. So you uh, end up taking over Guilty Pleasures uh, from, from Brendan after Brendan heads out, um, which seems pretty fitting uh, for, for you to be, be doing. It's like the first show. It's the show that pulled you in. Um, the show that you introduced everybody that you you know you knew uh, to yeah um, how was how was the the your run there doing that it was awesome I mean the show I don't think the show was as good I don't think it was as good I think I think losing Brendan's perspective on that show like we had to change and we did change it became something totally different sure um, but and I think you know Rogers the star I mean Rogers the thing that makes that show make sense so. It was really just kind of, you know, giving what Brendan told me when he asked me to take it over. He was like, look, I know that if you put the right, put in the right perspective, Roger is hilarious. And people can see, people don't see that when they see Roger. So I want to create a arena for him to excel in. And that's what that show was. Um, so, yeah, we kind of changed uh, pretty drastically losing you know, losing Brendan, but we still had fun and the show was a blast. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, the, we almost, we almost sold out across the street from Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> we, we had a show the same night that Rosie O'Donnell was at helium mm-hmm. and we almost sold out. 
which it was like, I was like, yeah, all right, <laughs> we're doing something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the ending of the show, uh, not the very ending, the Roger rap, the thing that he does. Um, mm-hmm. But before that, the way the show would typically end is Randy Johnson poems. Yeah. Uh, was that? I don't remember that from Brendan. Uh, no. Brendan, that was that was your thing. What was your fascination with those poems? Uh, you could very easily find five of them that would win every month that we did the show. There were there were good ones. There were always five good ones. He's so prolific. There's so many of them out there, uh, and I just needed something short that people could do that I could get five of. That's it. And those were always they were always funny. I think what's important that people understand everything. The foundation of guilty pleasures, and what made it really difficult in the later years as new people started coming into the scene, is that guilty pleasures like runs on this strange sincerity like the name is true like i loved reading and picking through the randy johnson poems yeah they're they're sing-songy and they are bizarre and he always gets his ass kicked and stuff and like and even like just that simple thing of putting at the end of each one whether or not the poem was real or not is like just so it's so delightful and joyful to me it's also funny um, and it was just a great thing to be like, okay, I can introduce a person, have them do their plugs, read this, and then have everyone clap. So it just felt like a nice way to end the show. And yeah, I think that was, you know, that uh, people who were unfamiliar with what the show was wouldn't really understand what that poem was, but I think the the real heads got it. Sure. Randy Johnson poetry. Yeah, and there were super fans of that show there were people that were there all the time i remember one of the first ones i went to the first time roger gets up and uh does his thing and everybody joining in with him and hitting you know all those um call and response things uh like i didn't i didn't know the song um the one that he was that he was doing i don't even know what it is now what what was the song roger's rap yeah it's just a rap he wrote oh okay um, yeah, that's just, his, his own thing. Yeah. Okay, that makes much more sense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he would always add and move some stuff around. It, it definitely, it's a living, a piece of living art in that okay. it's growing still. Yeah. All right. Uh, so with with guilty pleasures, when you take over, does that is that before or after you start getting involved more in uh, sketch? But yeah, all all around kind of the same time, and that was like a. I mean, I went from not doing comedy really at all to all of a sudden doing doing a lot of comedy. Um, but, it, you know, again, it was like, I remember when Brendan asked me to be a panelist on Guilty Pleasures, like, I made phone calls. You know, like, I called people to tell them, like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to be, you know, so when he asked me to take over the show, it was like, mm. yeah. if I had any ambition to actually, like, ever had ambition to do comedy on any level outside of like my goal was only ever to be on guilty pleasures, you know, like, <laughs> so to be able to host, it was like, all right, that's it. That's all that this world. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dog mountain was the sketch. So I, I'd done a solo <laughs> show before. Uh, 
Okay, so as far as sketch stuff goes, what was the what was the solo solo show? I got out of 101, I think right when they had the opening for packets for the first sketch house teams. Okay. So that was my first like sketch group. Um, I would go to sketch up or shut up and bring a sketch every month and I'd go to the theme show uh, once a month. Yeah. So I'd write two sketches a month back then before I was in a group. And um, yeah, I mean, sketch, you know, because of Mr. Show, sketch was the only thing that made sense to me, the sketch and the variety stuff. I had no interest in stand up outside of like going to open mics just to watch. Uh, and I think I probably went multiple years, years with an S, to the Philly Improv Theater seeing shows without actually seeing any improv. I just missed, I wasn't there on weekends. I was up at Emily's or in New York or whatever. And and that wasn't on purpose? No, no, no. Because it, it seems it, like you'd have to try. No, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are people that think... <laughs> I think that, but no, I, it was a uh, Wednesday night. I was, I was working. So Wednesday nights were good nights to go see stuff. Sure. If Wednesday night was improv night, I probably would have gone to that, which I guess yeah. it came, but. Yeah. I, I guess it is like years ago, it is a little easier. Cause like you mentioned earlier, fit is only doing shows um, two weeks out of every month and Wednesday through Saturday in a lot of cases. Uh, and it's like one show a night. Um, and then even when it becomes uh, more full-time, it's still more limited. It was also tough to get into shows, too. I mu there must have been times where I, I was in the city and was like, let me pop by the theater and see what's going on. Um, and just went by and it was, either a show was sold out or it was packed or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're also talking about a 40 or so seat theater. There's no way there's 40 seats in there, is it? In the Shubin? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was about 40, I believe it was about 40 seats. Wow. Um, so to sell out a show there, although there were plenty of shows where there was five, seven, you know, people in, in the audience, uh, but sellouts uh, were not as hard as they would be nowadays or as impressive, I guess. I remember really liking, there were a lot of good duos back then um jessica tandy i remember seeing and later on hot dog jessica ross and, and andy, andy moskowitz yeah. yeah and then jessica ross and luke field yeah yeah and um kate and andrew i remember like, yeah. they, so they they were ones that i like if there were two shows on the same night and if like kate and andrew were at connie's rick rack and there was something else said uh, mm -hmm whatever i would go to K go see kate and andrew yeah or jessica tandy or hot dog yeah like they were improv duos that like really drew me in but i but the big teams i mean i guess it was just on weekends that i was never in the city yeah okay uh so you are you, you got out of class put up put up this um you're doing theme show and and things like that um what was your first consistent sketch project? Dog Mountain. How was that experience for you? Um, great. It was great. It went on for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it felt every bit long, too. <laughs> when it was good, it was really good. Mm -hmm. uh, Rob was like, 
a great mentor to work with. Yeah, I knew yeah. Rob from TV Party. Yeah. And I thought he was just the funniest person on earth. Yeah, he's great. And then after, I think it was the second show, he, he was like, he was the head writer and director. And he was like, I am, I don't want to do this. He had work was like crazy or whatever. And he was yeah. like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So he was like, I'm going to tell everyone at the next writer's meeting that you're the head writer now. And I, I, it was like the same, I guess, Guilty Pleasures must have already already happened by then or it happened before. I don't know. But I remember just thinking like, oh, this is like the coolest thing that could happen to someone is to be promoted to head writer. I must be the best writer. <laughs> uh, and no, <laughs> I was definitely not the best writer on, on the team then. I think I was just the one that Rob knew I wouldn't say no if he told me that. I was just like looking for shit to do. So, yeah. Uh, and I, I think it took me, you know, all of the five years of being in Dog Mountain to realize that I don't like being a head writer and I'm probably not the things that you need to be a head writer. I don't think I like doing so. What are the things you think you need? You, you have to get people, you have to be good at getting people on the same page, organized, uh, get them, uh, enthusiastic and excited to do something, uh, and then, yeah, like the organizational skills and also giving like feedback, like pushing, you know, pushing people back. Our writer's room had all these writers who I really looked up to before I had started doing comedy, and all these performers who were around longer than I was. So I didn't feel, I didn't understand giving notes to someone, you know? So for years, our writer's room was really ice cold. You brought in a sketch that killed and we did it, or you brought in a rough draft of something that we all just kind of glared at and went on to the next one, you know, like yeah. it was not, not that much of a fostering environment for, and that made it really tough for being someone who was just learning how to write sketches really, you know, like sure. you had to bring in something that really worked um, or you'd never read it again, you know? Yeah. Um, I acted in the first two shows i think or maybe three shows um but they were they were fun shows yeah good time yeah um okay I don't know that they were great but they were fun i remember that the first one that rob made me head writer for uh like loot like literally losing sleep like staying up all night after the first show and thinking what are we going to do to make this work to make money for the next three three runs of the show. Yeah. But it was tough. I mean, you know, Rob was the guiding, you know, he was the one who had the experience from Megan Rob. And I just didn't, I didn't know what the hell I was doing for the first, I don't know, two years of that. Sure. So anyway, that's all the stuff that was negative about it. Once, <laughs> once we, <laughs> we kind of got our legs underneath us, when we were good, I think we were really good. We put yeah. on really good stuff. Sure. Uh, do you have a favorite favorite sketch, whether it was one of your own or not? Yeah, I do. Cool. Um, well, maybe you'll tell me about it sometime. <laughs> oh, what the hell? The one where Rob and I danced was awesome. There were the TJ Maxx. Mm. That one was a lot of fun, but only because it was we put in a lot of work, and I think it was just that there was something extra to that sketch that you didn't see in a typical sketch show. Yeah. 
ones that I wrote that really stood out, the one where Trevor's the private eye who just shoots everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really I remember that, great. yeah. I don't know. Trevor's just so funny. Yeah, any sketch that Trevor was really funny in is up there. Yeah, and such a unique delivery. Yeah. That was we got to a point where maybe like three years in. Uh, every sketch would end with just Trevor walking into the scene and saying something funny and then Bo lights out like <laughs> one line at the end, walk on stage, say one thing, and then that's it. Yeah. What about the sketches with Steve? How did you and Steve link up to to write things? Or did you just kind of come out of Dog Mountain? Just yeah, just coming out of Dog Mountain. I think at the end of the Dog Mountain run, it felt like uh everyone was kind of tired. It was really hard to get people to want to meet and write and rewrite stuff. And like, I had kind of, like I really started to care about this stuff in a peculiar way. Um, it was important to me to be good and to do hard work. Yeah. And I wanted to be at a point, I wanted to be in the best sketch group in Philadelphia. And the uh, secret pants stopped returning my emails. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to, uh, yeah, no, it just, and I don't know what it takes to do that. I never was. I don't think I ever was in the best sketch group in Philadelphia. Um, but uh, if you don't, if you're not in a group of people who share that, I guess, then it was like, you know, we had fun. It was fun for people to do, but yeah. I didn't know what we needed to do to get there. And it was kind of driving me nuts. And I think it was probably driving everyone else nuts too. So um Steve wanted to keep doing stuff. It was time for like sketch fest and or something. There was some show opportunity came up and everyone was like, yeah, we're, you know, they didn't really, really want to do it. And Steve and I were like, I just asked, or he asked me, he was like, do you want to do it as a duo? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so we started doing stuff. And I think sensibility wise, there was almost no one else in dog mountain or maybe Philadelphia who is as far away from my sensibilities as Steve. But work ethic wise, I really admired and fed off of his energy. So, so that's been really fun. It's been really fun to work with him and do stuff. Yeah. He directs Tiny Arson and I can back you up on his, his work ethic because as the former artistic director, um, I would work with uh, him, um, Jack O'Keefe more, more so than me, but I had plenty of exchanges with, uh, experience with steve over his time with that and he he's so nice yeah uh and he gets done what he has to get done uh and uh i i've said this to i've said this many many times and i can say it more so now that i'm not in that position but be easy to work with yeah right being an asshole doesn't make people want to go out of the way to help you do something that you are passionate about. Can you say it slower so I can write it down? Uh, I appreciate you <laughs> now. Be a good person. Uh, or at least pretend to be. To get where you want to get. To get what you want to get. Pretend to be a decent human being. Uh, being an asshole is not going to... Uh, it doesn't work with me. Um, and it's not going to work with a lot of people. What, the point what being... Is, what is that that tendency of people in this arena to want to be such jerks? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I really don't. Um, 
like part know. thinks it's like some kind of like macho like uh alpha type thing of like i am the entertainment and i am in the spotlight and i need all this stuff like you know like people would chalk it up to comedians being kind of like diva personalities but like sure. i feel like in order to do that you really need the body of work to back it up yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. the assholes just don't oh I, man yeah i can't tell you how many how many people with so many projects with so many attitudes and i'm just like who are you what are you doing what are you doing i'm trying to help i'm trying to be nice about things and i'm getting these long ass emails back like bye yeah the, the point here is that that's not steve <laughs> Steve is such a nice guy, uh, was very easy to work with, uh, and uh, nothing but positive thoughts uh, for him and all the people that are that way. And when I say his sensibilities are different, I mean, he's so funny. He's a really funny yeah. person. Um, it, but And for a while there, he was like doing this thing where he would write like two hours a day every day. So he was just a, I mean, he had a pile of sketches. And anytime we would meet, it was like a goal for me to outright Steve. If I had more sketches than Steve, then I would feel good. And I don't think I did it very often. He just always had so much more stuff. But uh, I really like working with him. We got to do uh, Chicago together, which was awesome. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's great. Okay. Uh, speaking just a little bit about writing sketches, because you have taught sketch classes. Yeah. You, you went from uh, just being a fan to actually teaching others how to, how to do it. So I'm curious what you, uh, curriculums aside, uh, what you feel makes us, what sketches need or how, how you would work with a student to make their sketch better. I'm, I'm sure that, not I'm sure, I know that the specifics of those things are going to be specific to the sketch at hand. But what yeah. are some things that you think make a sketch work? Fart noises, falling down, talking with an accent, things like this. Cool. Yeah. See, that's pretty cut and dry. That's stuff I can use. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think it's, you know, the, the most important thing for, I think anyone doing any, any kind of artistic thing is just knowing that it's the process, right? That's what's important is the process. Mm. Um, your success is measured by your ability to keep doing it uh, and not, I mean, at some point it's the end result, right? You can't just keep writing shit, but you will can, you will write shit if you're not constantly doing it. So, you know, and like, I just, I think about this stuff all the time. There was a while I read this book. Like I got it right here. I got this book. We don't need to say it out loud. Cause I don't know if you, if you want to give them a free, Ad, but sure that book is still shrink wrapped <laughs> this is called the bible i found it in a hotel <laughs> no they talk about um just any one of these books on comedy writing i've read a bunch of them and i was reading this one that was like talking to me about theme and theme and writing and that's when i was like oh is there a theme to like sketch in the way that this person was kind of talking about it and i started like boiling down sketches so taking the sketches that I like and boiling them down to their essence and picking them apart like that. Now, look, there's nothing to be learned from that other than you're just thinking about it a lot. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the thing is just 
just care if you know if you care about what you're doing, you think about it a lot, and you'll get better at it. Okay. Kevin McDonald of Kids in the Hall has come to Philly several times at this point and done workshops. Uh, have you been able to get into any of those with him? Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the takeaways from that? Um, I remember him saying that an end of a sketch should be surprising and satisfying. And I tell every class I have <laughs> that now. Um, yeah. I mean, that's also the, really one of the first times I did improv was in his workshop mm-hmm. and felt, you know, like, okay, this makes sense to me. I, I feel like I understand what this is. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's such a specific thing. The thing that he teaches, it's incredible. It's an amazing experience. But I don't know that, like we tried to do improv to sketch with Dog Mountain once. We had a Dan Corkery come in for a writer's meeting. Mm-hmm. Had him like direct us and give feedback and notes. And then we took premise, we took premise from that and then pulled some sketches. I think we ended up getting like three or four sketches written for the next show from that. But I mean, that's what I, I think would have been the lasting takeaway from Kevin McDonald. Okay. Uh, so that's a fine transition because you went from avoiding improv shows at all costs to performing on an improv team. Uh, I was several avoiding times. them. Uh, <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, how did that start happening? How did you start performing improv and not just getting on up and, you know, fucking around? but being on improv teams that, that meet weekly and perform weekly. Yeah. I, um, I, I think I needed a break from sketch. A sketch can wear you out pretty, you know, pretty slowly for me because it was so much fun, but it gets to a point where it's like, after you do enough good shows, it's like, what else am I going to do now? What is how, you know, the thrill you can't keep, you build a tolerance to it and it doesn't get you as drunk as it did, you know, like, yeah. So, um, I guess improv, you know what happened? I was invited by the future to be on one of their weird, what was it? The Monday nights or Tuesday night shows? The teacher presents. Yeah. Yeah. They had a, they would do weird, uh, bits. Like they would make grilled cheese on the stage while the show is going on mm-hmm. or, Frank or yeah, Fred would play um, his uh, his piano and banjo and stuff. Like they would do something weird. And one week, uh, the weird thing was invite uh, me and other people to be in the show. Yeah. So in that show, I got to play in with people who, at that point, I had worked. I'd been around the theater and I'd worked with them all. That I was friends. I felt friendly with them. You know, like. I knew who they were and it wasn't like every other time I did improv where it was, I just felt like I was lost. And I think performing with people who I respected so much, I knew they were really funny and they could really support and it felt fun. Yeah. It didn't feel nerve wracking. It didn't feel like I was drowning on stage. So I did that show and it was incredible. And I said, I think I owe it to myself to see if I could get that feeling. I liked, I liked that. It was unlike anything else I'd ever done with improv was just playing with those people. So. Yeah. Uh, so you've done a couple different teams then. Yeah. Uh, what were the teams? I was on high fashion. 
coached by Adam Steiger. Yep. And I was on, oh, guillotine. Guillotine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, guillotine coached by Courtney Farrell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any takeaways from, from those teams? Uh, no, they were great. I mean, I, I think I got there at different times. Uh, that feeling that I had on the future was, I, I, lo- I really like improv now. I think it's great. Um, when it's done well, it's as good as really great sketch. Yeah. Um, um, well, you're going to be doing it on Wednesday in the study hall show. Right. A little bit, a little bit of it. Um, yeah. And it's via Zoom, so you know it's going to be great. Um, you know, I, it, like, it, it, I don't know. You're, you were an improv guy first, right? You, I mean, you've done sketch before, but you were improv first. Yeah. Uh, when I was in college, I, I did sketch, uh, and then I – when I moved back, when I moved to Chicago, I very quickly got involved in improv and didn't really look. look so back. you were sketch first? Yeah, in college. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah, I didn't do any improv until I moved to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and then when I moved back to Philly, it was all improv. And then I did some sketch with Dog Mountain. And then I didn't really do much with sketch until directing last year's Nightmare on John Street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what uh, what what are your thoughts on improv? You still you still love it? I do. Yeah, uh, I I can't wait to do it for human beings that are in attendance uh, in person again. Um, I since I I mean even since I moved back to Philly, there hasn't been uh, a long well that's not true either. I was about to say that I had there hasn't been a long a period where I was performing consistently, but there was like two years where I was with the Seltzer Hour. Yeah. Um, but now, uh, I guess I just don't feel the need to perform as often. Um, and now everything's closed and I'm not, uh, the AD at fit where I can just give myself a fucking show, uh, yeah. whenever, whenever I want to do one. Um, so well, it'll because, be weird. Like, yeah. I know you as an instructor and as a director and a performer, not as much. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Uh, because I get tired. Um, I mean, that's, that's remote. Be tired, like sleepy. Tired of, uh, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, I mean, doing that position, uh, artistic director or education director, um, at a small business, which, you know, a lot of people don't look at fit as a small business because there's so many classes and so many people, but it's a fucking small business. Yeah. Um, is draining um and it's not a nine to five uh it's a phone rings and you deal with something or an email comes in and you deal with something no matter how many times you know people would say oh put up your away message something comes in you deal you know you deal with it Um, so there were uh times where um I, I would I would perform when I want to perform. I didn't want to perform because I had a show. Yeah. If that made sense. Well, do you how important is it for you, I guess, to be performing with people who you have that level of familiarity with? Uh, I think that adds something to it for me. Um, is, that, is that an integral part of improv? I think for a lot of people it is. Uh, mm. For me, I just have to have I learned 
pretty early on in improv that, uh, and this is from Susan Messing, if you're not having fun, you're the asshole. Uh, yeah. And I learned to have that fun uh, when, when I'm on stage, regardless of who, who it's with. Um, and I don't have, in my opinion, I don't have second thoughts about a show. Like you get a lot of people like, oh, I feel really down about that show. I don't give a shit after a show is done. <laughs> like if, if, the, if the audience wasn't feeling it and I'm having a good time and the people up there that are, are having a good time, um, I, I, don't have it, I don't have those normal feelings that, that performers, performers have. Um, but I mean, to the, to the other question, like do, do I miss performing? Yeah, I miss, uh, I think anybody, if I could get up on stage now, every day I, I might, yeah, nothing else to do. Yeah, I mean, I think those were the two the two like pricklier parts of doing improv that were difficult for me was one that that like competitive thing, right? That sketch like definitely had. I would go, you'd go to a sketch up or shut up, or you'd go to a theme show, and there were nights where I would feel like this sketch that I brought was the funniest sketch of the night. Yeah, that would put wind in my sails for a month. Sure. Um, and it was absolutely going to the bar after the talking it over with other comedians and being like, you know, Hey, that, that was good. Right. Like that worked. That made sense. Yeah. Like those wins meant something when you brought something that sucked, it was like, well, Hey, at least I brought something, but you felt that sting a little bit. Yeah. Um, and there's not so much of that with improv. Yeah. It's not part of the culture, I guess it's there, but it's like not really, t- it's like swept under the rug. Like people still shit talk or criticize, but sure. It's not, it was like just accepted, I think, in sketch a little bit more. Yeah. And then the other one was just that, like the level of friend, you need that. I think, I think that, and like, it, look, improv teams do that right from the beginning, right? They try to create this like, summer camp vibe and prickly. Uh, yeah, there's, there's that summer camp vibe for sure. Um, but, I think I was, if I was just starting out, I probably would have some of those reservations and some of those feelings too. But like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 years at this point. Um, plus I was in a position where I could pick the people that I wanted to perform with. Uh, so I was picking people that I was friends with uh, or that I admired uh, the, the, either as people or as, uh, as talents, uh, or preferably a combination of all of those, all of those things. So I was always still taking care of myself and I knew that I was going to have a good time. Um, but I don't think that I necessarily need to know the people or have that level of camaraderie, um, to Mm. have a good show or to have a good time because essentially improv is just listening to the people and building on once the you know what's what's out there. So you feel the need though to have like a team that you're performing on. Not really, no. Um, I mean, I also direct a lot, uh, right. and I consider myself a part of those those teams. Um, and I tell that to my casts when when they're up there, um, winning those awards. Yeah, when they're you know winning those awards. You know which that wall belongs, is going on, right? <laughs> that belongs to me. <laughs> that belongs to me. Um, yeah, you can have it for a photo. Um, yeah, I mean, so I was was directing a lot and then the full-time jobs uh, being basically on call. Um, 
I didn't necessarily want that uh, commitment. I wanted to be able to choose when and where I, I performed. I think we are in a, a good spot to begin wrapping things up, but I would be um, abandoning my post. I would be doing us all a disservice if I didn't talk about pizza. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what is, how did the, and I use this term lightly. Yeah. How did this obsession, this fascination begin? Because when I think of, when I think of pizza now, I can't not associate it with you. Oh, that's great. Whether I'm making it myself, which I, which I can do now, um, or I'm, I'm heating it up, whatever, whatever. Permission, you can do it now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, so how did that all, all begin? Because I think that's an, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, that's another without article yeah. or, or column that kind of came to be. So I was doing all these goofy uh, articles writing about open mics. And obviously, even I knew as I was doing it, there's no, there's nothing to, there's no, there's no actionable thing to do. This doesn't help anyone to go see what people were wearing at an open mic that you can't promote a show off of that. So in order to make something that was more of like an article, more of an interesting thing uh, that we could post on the website a week out from a show to send you know, out on social media or whatever, or send to media outlets, um, I would interview people about pizza. Why, why? I don't know. I like pizza. Pizza's awesome. Uh, it's cheap. So I could tell a performer, hey, before the show, meet me up for a couple slices, you know, let's meet up for a couple slices of pizza somewhere. And I'm going to, I would print out a piece of paper that had five questions on it that had nothing to do with comedy. They were just about pizza. Yeah. What day was pizza day growing up? What's your favorite topping? Where's your favorite pie? You know, whatever. And then I would ask them to draw a pizza picture on the back. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just so that we would have something that could promote actual stuff. Right. Uh, but still be kind of fun and silly. And at the very least, even if I was going to, I mean, I, I only interviewed fun people for that. But at the very least, I was going to get a slice of pizza out of the deal. So like, all right, I'll do, I'll do that. And um, it became a great way to meet people too. Mm-hmm. Not having any real sway in the scene, people who didn't know who the hell I was, it was a lot easier to be like, hey, can I sit down and talk to you if I buy you pizza? They're going to say, yeah. Yeah. So like a couple of times I would go to Lickety Split before a show at Fit and I would invite everyone who was on the show over and just buy like a pie or two and then hand out a bunch of these questionnaires. So you'd walk into Lickety Split and there would be you know, like eight people sitting across three tables, sitting down and taking this like little test, writing down answers to these questions, drawing pictures of pizza. Yeah. And that was Joe Moore's Pizza Pals? Yeah, Pizza Pals. And then I, I don't remember how it happened, but we got, I did Todd Glass and I did uh, Pizza Pals with Scott Aukerman, mm. um, which was like just awesome. Because I, like, I really love those comedians and, to ask them questions about pizza was surreal. I'll have to f- track these down and throw them into the uh, episode notes of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'll try to find the link for, w- there were a, a bunch of the open mic ones uh, where I made people up. 
So I would like number every person. Like, people went, there would be 21 listed and I'd just make up some name and some description. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to find one of those and maybe uh, astute listeners can try to guess who the made up name was. What is your, I love pizza. You love pizza too. Every, everyone, I do. It's such an easy thing, you know, and I grew up in a place where there was a lot of great pizza around. So I worked in a pizza parlor for years. Really? Yeah, Mario's Pizza, in a corner of Oxford and Somerdale, up in the Northeast. And it is still there, right? No, I think. It, well, I mean, the place is still there. Uh, the last time I was up that way, which is years ago at this point, uh, it was called Doughboy's Pizza. Mm. It was Mario's Pizza. It was uh, that's where I learned to make pizza, cook steaks. Uh, really got a flair, uh, um, got a um, a good handle on Philly foods. Went to Chicago and I would do like this taste of Philly party Mm -hmm. uh, where I'd invite anybody that I knew over and I would cook in the kitchen, uh, make cheesesteaks. I'd have people send out uh, pork roll and Amoroso rolls and all that shit. I'd have a tip jar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And my my apartment at the time, it was set up where it had a window going into the dining room. So all I would do is open that up and that was like the order pickup window. Uh, (laughs) uh, It was such a good time. Uh, but what is your you got to order through a window yeah what is your favorite topping or combination of toppings when i make pizza at home i make a plain pie i don't put i I don't really like putting toppings on a pie i'm making at home only because it's so damn good i've gotten it down to where i like it so much how it is yeah um also uh my wife is vegetarian so like if i make a pepperoni pie i gotta eat that whole thing you know what i mean sure Probably pepperoni. Yeah. Probably yeah. Pepperoni. Classic. Same. Same with me. Yeah. Uh, big meat lover, uh, topping kind of person. But pepperoni, if I had to choose just one. I took a workshop at Fit with a visiting touring instructor. I won't say their name. But uh, when it was like time to introduce yourself, it was like, say your name and something interesting about you. And I was like, my name is Joe and I really like pizza. And they were like, like, oh, that, how unique, like, like sarcastic that, 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 yeah, right. That my interesting thing was that I like pizza and like, man, that really stuck with me. That, that, <laughs> but it's, you know, like genuinely growing up, it was like when I was in second or third grade, I could walk around the corner and go get lunch by myself, like go to the pizza place. Like it's just always been such an important part of life that it's like, yeah, fuck yeah. That is an interesting thing about me. I do. People like pizza. Yes. I yeah. fucking love pizza. <laughs> I'm thinking about it all the time. I remember uh, the first time uh, you could get pizza by the slice. Like I remember growing up, like, we do, we, you can, I can go in and I can just get a slice. Yeah. With in, like dollar amounts that make sense to a little kid. Yeah. Like a buck 35 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a dollar a slice. You want pepperoni? It's another 25 cents. Right. Um, yeah, you need a paper and then two not papers, and you can get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, pizza. Pizza is a huge part of my of my life. Um, I didn't start making my own until last year, mm-hmm. but I've been making my own Stromboli's, the Marboli, which is uh, plenty of meats in there. Yeah, um, delicious. I finally had one at one of the the fabled Marboli. Yeah, yeah. I guess the last time when Dot and I were over. Yeah. Um, they're good. And those are, those came out of working at Mario's pizza at Oxford and Somerdale. Mm. 
they didn't make that. That wasn't something that they sold. That was that was my own. Does does your origin story is like they had a thing called the Marvel? <laughs> no, they could like you couldn't sell that. Uh, like people don't understand like that is an expensive endeavor. Right. Like, all of those different meats uh, that are. I mean, it's probably twenty bucks per. Jeez. Marboli. Yeah, which would make it like what forty five at a pizzeria. I mean, now well, that you get a free three liter bottle of soda. Yeah, but now that like designer pizzas, you know, like hit, you know, you could probably you could probably charge double for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm hearing that from people during this uh, self isolation and pandemic want me to yeah. make some marbolis, make some sourdough starter thing. I haven't. I have not done that. And it changed the pizza game for me. It changed pizza completely. What's what is it? What's going on? What's the deal with the sour? What's the deal with the sourdough? Uh, it's the yeast, right? That's what you're doing. Is you're growing yeast now, harvesting yeah. yeast. So for me, the dough is a lot more consistent. I'm not putting in too much or too little yeast. Um. I got this 25 pound bag of flour, which is probably like five pounds left. Like we've blown through this thing, but I'm making bagels, baguettes, pizza. Now, you know, I'm, I'm baking something almost every day. Yeah. Um, but the, but the pizza. So like, look, I, if you're really paying attention, if you make a lot of pizza, you'll be able to taste the difference of the sourdough, right? Like a, a three day cold ferment fermentation with dough that I grew here is a lot different than the commercial yeast that you'd buy at the store. So I, beyond beyond the taste, the taste is so subtle. That's not the deal breaker for me, right? It's just uh, yeah. it's just fun, and it keeps me baking every day. You have to feed the yeast every day, so I'm baking feed the yeast. Feed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we just did our own our own pizza pals. Yeah. Hey, there you go, dude. You're a pizza pal now. All right. Fantastic. Uh, well, uh, you are one of my favorite people. Uh, in Philly comedy, and I know for sure that uh, I am not alone in that in that sentiment. Uh, you're a um, uh, overall very funny, very positive individual within the scene, and it's lucky to have you. Uh, so yeah. thank you for getting close uh, with me with me today. Uh, the feelings mutual, Mike. I've been looking forward to doing this podcast for so long, and I'm so glad to do it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm gonna crush the tape now. Yeah, crush it. <laughs>